Well, if you would, please join me in standing out of eagerness for Christ to speak to you through His Word and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. If you don't happen to have a Bible in front of you this morning, it is always useful to have one nearby as we study God's Word together. So you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby you, and you can find today's text on page 880. If you weren't with us last week, we studied what Jesus was up to on Tuesday of Passion Week, these final days before Jesus would be killed at the cross of Calvary. And we saw that he was teaching in the temple. He had taken up something of a teaching residency in that most holy place. And the Sanhedrin came and confronted him on a problem of Jesus' authority. And Jesus quickly dispatched with their concern and then gave them a parable about his identity as God's beloved son, And then the parable landed with Jesus promising that all those who reject him will find God's judgment crushing them in the end. And we left in verse 19 of chapter 20 with the religious leaders recognizing this parable was spoken against them. And they're trying to figure out how to destroy Jesus, but they're simultaneously scared of what the people will think about it because the people are still enraptured with Jesus Christ. And so as we pick up the text this morning, still on Tuesday of Passion Week, we find that these leaders are still ascending their assaults and traps towards Jesus, just this time through some proxies. And so we want to look at this morning verses 20 through 44 of Luke chapter 20. So let me read our text for us, and then I'll pray for God's blessing on our study, and we will begin. So they watched Jesus and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but you truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, and having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second, and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will this woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, Sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to the age and the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised... Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. 
But he said to them, How can they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Now, Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we do thank You that You have chosen to spoke to speak to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the radiance of your glory, the exact imprint of your being. And we pray that we would see him with eyes of faith, uh, with hearts of repentance, with ears of understanding as we want to follow him and know him as we must in order that we might live. So help us by your Spirit to do these things. By your Spirit, help me to preach as your word says I must, with clarity, with, with courage, always recognizing that we're not promised tomorrow, yet alone not promised even another sermon to hear or me to preach. And so help me to preach as a dying man unto dying people. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you can remember back to the 1984 presidential election when the incumbent president Ronald Reagan was being haggled about his age because he was 73 years old at the time and many journalists and media members thought he was quite old, maybe even too old, for yet another term in the presidency. And so during the second presidential debate in the run-up to the 84 election, a man named Hank Truitt stood up and began to rattle off reasons. Truitt was a reporter for the Baltimore Sun. And he began to rattle off these reasons why Reagan was probably too old for another term in the White House. And he subsequently essentially said to Reagan, Well, Mr. President, what do you think about all of this? And Reagan somewhat famously now responded, I want you to know that I'm not going to make age an issue of this campaign. I'm not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth or inexperience. And Truitt responded, this is actually forgotten, but it's quite clever in and of itself. Mr. President, I'd like to head for the fence and try to catch that one before it goes over. Because he had hit a home run in his response in the midst of that heated debate. And it's something of an echo of what we're going to see in our text this morning as we get these three scenes of debate. Three scenes of dialogue between Jesus and various leaders that are there in the temple on that Tuesday of Passion Week. And each one of these scenes has something like a trick question in them, motivating the ensuing discussion. And first, we're going to see the spies' question. Secondly, the Sadducees' question. And thirdly, the son of David's question. And as we work through these questions and answers... I want you to see if you might notice something of a unifying truth about Jesus Christ in the text. Because I think there is one, and I want to land there at the end this morning. But kids, as we walk along these scenes, and students, as we listen to the arguments and the counter-arguments, I want to think about what does this text tell us about Jesus Christ that is still true about Him today, even in our time. So we just have three simple scenes I come with three simple questions, the first of which is the spies question. Notice how the text begins in verse 20 once again. So the religious leaders watched Jesus and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. Uh, Mark's gospel paints more a color about this scene because he tells us that these spies were none other than the 
Pharisees and Herodians, or at least some members of the Pharisees and some members of the Herodians. Now, it's quite interesting to note that because Pharisees and Herodians hated each other. Pharisees were religious people. Herodians were irreligious people. Pharisees were those who loathed the Roman Empire, while Herodians were those who loved the Roman Empire. But their mutual hatred for Jesus transcends their mutual hatred for each other, and so they scheme together in this moment to try to trap Jesus in something he'll say. Why? Well, look at the end of verse 20. They wanted to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Uh, We said this last week, only the Roman Empire had the power of the sword. Only the Roman Empire then could execute this man named Jesus Christ. The religious authorities didn't have that power at that time in Jerusalem. So they're trying through cunning and clever arguments, trap Jesus into saying something that they can report to the governor and then essentially accuse him of being a a political revolutionary, someone who's stirring up sedition and insurrection and Rome needs to get rid of him lest they lose their empire there in Jerusalem. And so these spies begin not with a direct argument. Notice how they begin with flattery in verse 21. They said, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. So, so kids, what you want to think about here is they're, they're trying to butter up the Son of God. They're trying to loosen the Lord's lips through insincere comments about things that are nonetheless true of Jesus Christ. All the while, they're putting this noose around his neck that they might tighten it and do away with him. And so look at their scheme, their question in verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? It's the age-old question, isn't it? Should we pay taxes to the government or not? And on the surface level at that time, it actually is quite an excellent trick question. Because no matter what Jesus says, he's seemingly going to lose in the midst of the audience there at the temple on that Tuesday. Because if he says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, well then clearly he's stirring up some kind of revolt against Rome. And they go report him to the governor. But if he says, yes, you should pay taxes... Jews at this time thought they shouldn't because it was Yahweh who had authority over them, so only Yahweh should be the one that could get things like taxes from his people. So if Jesus would say, no, pay taxes to Caesar, well, then he's revolting against Yahweh's authority. So surely, as they're coming with this question, uh, they think they've got him. No matter his answer, we're going to basically denigrate him in the sight and in the hearing of all of these people. But... Jesus is not so easily overcome. Look at what he says with this show-and-tell response of verse 23 and 24. He perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar. So kids, he's, he's basically saying, Get, show, me, show me a coin. Let's pull out a coin from your pocket that belongs to the Roman Empire. It's their currency and whose picture is on that coin. And it would have been the face of Caesar at the time. So Jesus says, notice verse 25, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. To God, the things that are God. As quickly as they thought they got him. So quick as he jumped out and slipped away from their snare. Because he's clearly put to rest their argument by just a simple show and tell. You see this coin with Caesar's image? Well, that belongs to Caesar. Give that to Caesar. But there's a more subtle claim that he's making. Because do you know, students, what else the Bible tells us about an image? Who bears God's image? 
He says those that bear God's image is essentially what he's saying. Render to God. They belong to God. Well, who is that? It's not coins. It's not cash. It's people. Like you and me, Genesis 1.27 says we've been created in God's image. And so it's a claim here that Jesus is making that every single human life belongs to God and must then submit to his lordship and bow before his authority, which, of course, none of these religious leaders at the time want to do. And so they're silenced. Notice verse 26, in the presence of the people, they couldn't catch him. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. So almost as quickly as they came, uh, these spies exit stage left in the temple, and then stage right, it's like just a parade of confrontation on that day in the temple, come the Sadducees, and they too have a question. And much like our political system here in America has this kind of two-party rivalry going on between Democrats and Republicans, back then in Jerusalem you had a two-party system between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And some people have called the Pharisees the theological conservatives, while the Sadducees were the theological liberals. And to some degree, that's actually quite true. But if you fill it out a little bit, the Sadducees came from the wealthiest parts of Jewish society. They were something like the rich religious rationalists. And they tended to disagree on almost everything with the Pharisees. So, for example, the Pharisees believed in divine sovereignty. The Sadducees believed in free will alone. The Pharisees believed in angels and demons. The Sadducees said such supernaturalism was rubbish. The Pharisees believed in all 39 books of the Old Testament as being inspired by God. The Sadducees said, no, it's just the first five books of the Bible that are inspired by God and authoritative. The Pharisees said, there is a life after death and there is a heaven and hell. The Sadducees said, no, there's none of it. This is all we get, just this existence here on earth. And it's on that final point that they now want to spar with Jesus. Because look what Luke tells us in verse 27. There came to Jesus some Sadducees, those who deny there is a resurrection. And they asked Jesus a question. And so in verses 28 to 33, they present Jesus with this hypothetical situation that seems to be so ludicrous that surely it refutes the idea of a resurrection of the dead. And they call on Moses in Deuteronomy 25. In the Old Testament law, you had something that was known as Leverite marriage. So here's the situation. A man marries a woman, and then there's, they're childless, and the man dies. And Leverite marriage, in order to make sure that the family wouldn't die out, that the family line was intact, allowed for a brother of the one who died to then take the woman as his wife, to provide a child and continue on the family line. And so the Sadducees will say, okay, consider this hypothetical situation. A man has six brothers. Because of Leverite marriage and evidently their ill health, all seven have married this woman and died before she did, without giving them a child. And so here's, in their mind, the kind of illogicality, if I can make up a word, about the resurrection. Well, which one of those men gets to be her husband in the resurrection? For the Sadducees, it seems to be this kind of problem they've presented to the Pharisees about the resurrection and never heard a satisfactory answer. Well, Jesus is getting ready to give them a satisfactory answer, and he's going to show them two things they don't understand rightly. The first of which is they don't rightly understand the ages. Look what Jesus says in 34 and 35. 
The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. What he is saying is you can't think of the age to come as though it's identical with this age now. In fact, if you do that, you're going to go quite wrong, not only in understanding this age, but also the age to come. I remember sitting with a professor that formerly was at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and he was saying that about 25 years ago, he and a colleague had written a book on heaven and what happens after death, and it was entitled, If I Should Die Before, Our, Before I Wake. And one of the co-authors had agreed at the time to do all the radio interviews about the book. And so he would go on and answer questions about why they wrote the book, and maybe other questions readers or listeners had about what happens after death. And this co-author said there was one question that so dominated all other questions that it seemed to be the overwhelming concern of Christians in America about what happens after death. And the question was, what is my relationship with my spouse going to be like? And maybe you've had that question too. What is Jesus saying here about marriage in the age to come? Well, he clearly says there is no marriage in the age to come. They don't marry nor are given in marriage. And we want to ask the question, students, of why? Jesus is going to give us an answer. Why? Why is marriage done away with, with the coming of the new heavens and new earth? Look at verse 36. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So his reasoning there is they cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels. And you might be somewhat surprised and maybe even intrigued to know how many Christians throughout the ages have taken verse 36 to be a proof text for human beings living in something like genderless existence in glory because they're going to be like the angels. Well, what's better said, of course, is they're going to be like the angels insofar as this is what Jesus seems to be saying, doesn't he? They will not die in the age to come. Now what does that have to do with marriage? That you're not going to die in glory. Well, you need to remember that there is an original purpose for marriage that our context today, our time today, tends to forget because it's assumed the purpose of marriage into just simple physical pleasure. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, right after saying that we've been created in God's image, God says the purpose for which He created marriage was procreation that we might fill the earth. But when people no longer die in the age to come, there's no need to fill the earth because it's already full. And so there's no need for marriage. And what will have passed away is marriage here on earth, which is a sign for that union that is to come in the new heavens and the new earth. And C.S. Lewis was once talking about this, and he said, if you try to explain the pleasures of that heavenly union with just the mind of this earthly union that we have in marriage. It'd be like trying to explain sexual intimacy to a three-year-old. And they just listen to you and they say, okay, can I have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich afterwards? Because it just doesn't make any sense to them. And I want you to be encouraged that so great and glorious are the pleasures that await God's people in the age to come that we can't possibly conceive how wonderful they are. So he says, the Sadducees, you're misunderstanding the whole point here. You don't understand the age to come. Secondly, you don't understand rightly the scriptures themselves. Because look at what he says in verse 37. Now he's getting to this argument about whether or not there's a resurrection of the dead. 
But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So kids, if you were listening just a few minutes ago, do you remember what books of the Bible I said the Sadducees trusted in as authoritative? First, five books of the Bible. And then Jesus is now calling on this story about God speaking from a burning bush. Do you remember what book of the Bible that comes from? Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. Right in the middle of the scriptures, they understood to be divinely inspired. The scene in which surely they had memorized what had happened there between Yahweh and Moses there at the burning bush. And Jesus is reasoning by good and necessary consequence. Uh, God did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, seemingly pointing to the truth that there is still life after death. There is a resurrection of the dead. They are within God's presence and glory in some way that we may not be able to fully understand. So look at his conclusion then in verse 38. Now he is not the God of the dead, but God of the living, for all live to him. And even the original Greek is real emphatic in this sentence. It's probably better translated with an exclamation point at the end. In Jesus' mind, and surely in the hearer's mind, and even his opponent's mind, he has just closed the case that has divided Sadducees and Pharisees for so many years. Because notice what we're told in verse 39. Some of the scribes, these are people that have just opposed him a few scenes before that we looked at last week, trying to trap him, trying to hand him over to Roman authorities. Look what they say. Teacher. You've spoken well. We haven't been able to do this. Silence the Sadducees. So much so, notice, they no longer dared to ask him any question. There is truth to the fact that to debate with Jesus and to try to make him look silly on matters of truth will always lead to only one outcome in the end, won't it? You will be exposed as the one who is truly foolish and full of silly arguments. The spies just found it out. The Sadducees just found it out, but now the son of David himself has a question. If you were to look later today in Matthew's gospel, his comparison now with verse 41 and 44, he tells us that after dispatching with the Sadducees, Jesus turns his attention to the Pharisees, so the theological conservatives we've often called in our study of Luke's gospel the fundamentalists of the day. And he says to them, who is the Messiah's father? That's essentially what he asked them. And they know their Bibles well. They say, well, the Messiah is the son of David. Jesus says, ah, notice verse 41 through 43. How can they say the Messiah is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And maybe you don't know exactly what Jesus is on about here as he thinks he's trapped these Pharisees and others listening, which he has. We know that they are silenced and can't give him any sort of response. He's just quoted from Psalm 110, verse 1, which, interestingly enough, is the most quoted Old Testament text in all of the New Testament, showing up some 33 different times. So it's quite important that we pay attention to what Jesus is saying here. We know that David wrote Psalm 110. And in verse 1, which is quoted there in our text, verse 42 and 43, there's something going on in the Hebrew that our ESV translation doesn't really bring out. Because there's two different words for Lord used. First word is Yahweh, the second word is Adonai. So something of a different translation might say, the God of Israel says to my Messiah, 
the Messiah is David's son, you say. But Jesus is like, well, David, who wrote this psalm, has just called him my Lord, my Messiah. So which is true? Well, look at verse 44. David thus calls on him Lord. So how is it that he is his son? And as I said, we know from the other gospel accounts, they don't have an answer for Jesus at this point. Because, of course, the right answer is the Messiah is both what? David's son and God's son. He is both David's son and David's Lord. And for that to be the case, it must be true that this Messiah has existed before the time of David. But has also come in the flesh after the time of David. That he can rightly be called the Lord of the covenant king David while at the same time be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and is the son of David come to rule on the throne and it's another than Jesus Christ. And so it's yet again in Luke's gospel, we mentioned this last week, in his conflict with these opponents, a simple yet subtle indication of Jesus' true identity. Who is he? He is God's beloved son who has come to fulfill God's promises to David to rule and reign over his people and establish his kingdom. So, the son of David's question is the only one in this text that doesn't get an immediate answer because Jesus spoke it. I'm not sure what your Valentine's Day traditions are at your home, but with our six little kids at home, uh, right now our current Valentine's Day tradition is my wife Emily will make a a five-star four-course meal for the children and it just kind of unfolds as the evening progresses. And with excitement and eagerness, they get excited for Emily to kind of come around the corner with just the next course, something special that maybe they've never had before, or they've wanted and they haven't had it for so long. And there's a sense in which when God's people read the Gospels of Jesus Christ with each passing page, with each passing chapter, with each passing scene, we sit more glory, we see more goodness and grace about the Lord Jesus Christ that excites us, that makes us eager to know who he is. Because as I said at the beginning of the sermon, when you see Jesus in the gospel, you always need to recognize that we need to read the text with a particular passage later on in the New Testament in mind. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, which says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So what I mean by that is who Jesus is in this text, he still is today. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So then here's a question. In this text with three questions, three trick questions, three scenes, who is Jesus in this passage? Well, as we begin to close, I want to kind of point out what may be the obvious answer to who Jesus is that we need to recognize and revel in this morning. But then also I want to point out something that often tends to get overlooked in this passage of Jesus tussling with the authorities in the temple on that Tuesday of Passion Week. So point number one as we begin to close. First, this text tells us that Jesus cannot be defeated. To defeat Jesus is impossible, even in something that may seem as worldly as an argument and debate. He can't be cornered. He can't be conquered. You can't come against this king and expect that you are ever going to win. And kids, what you need to understand about this truth, defeating Jesus is impossible. This is a foundation for all our comfort in life. There are times that will come along the way when it feels like hope has vanished, that the light of goodness, of grace, of glory, and of gospel 
is swallowed up by the darkness. Oh, but the good news of the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, is he will be victorious in the end. That this king will conquer. That the son, the savior, will have supremacy. That the truth will triumph in the end. And so just as impossible as it is for a fish to summit Mount Everest, so too is it impossible for any man, woman, boy or girl, come against this king and stand victorious. So maybe you want to ask the question then, if no one can stand against this king, can anyone stand with him? Defeating Jesus is impossible. The text also tells us that seeing Jesus is possible. Because look back up at verse 35. Tucked away in his dialogue with the Sadducees, is a gospel invitation if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. You see what he says at the beginning of verse 35? Those who are considered worthy are those that attain to the age to come. And kids, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say those who are worthy, nor does he say those who could be worthy. What does he say? Those who are considered worthy. Theologically, we would call this a divine passive. It's those whom God counts as worthy. So whom does God count as worthy? Careful readers of Luke's gospel up until this point, if they've been paying attention for the first 19 and a half chapters, know the answer. It's those who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ, who are counted worthy. It's only those who recognize their unworthiness and realize Christ's worthiness that will ever attain to the age to come. Because understand what's getting ready to happen in just about three days in the life of Jesus. Even though it's going to take many more weeks for us to get there as a church. Three days from now, the king will be crucified at a hill called Calvary. And what happens there? It's the Son of God treated as unworthy. He who knew no sin was made sin on our behalf, so that by turning from our sin and trusting in Him, we might become what? Worthy. We who are unworthy might become worthy, become the righteousness of God in Him. The good news of the gospel is that seeing Jesus for all eternity is indeed possible, but only because of what He has done in our place. So the spies, they ask Jesus a question. The Sadducees, they ask Jesus a question. The son of David himself asks the crowds and the leaders a question. And do you know that Jesus has a question for you this morning? Through his word and spirit, through the truth of this passage. He wants you to know that defeating Jesus is impossible. But he's also asking you this personal question this morning. Will you attain to the age to come? Will you be considered worthy to see Christ for all eternity? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is full of mercy and grace, that Christ is our life, that he is the resurrection, that he is the hope of glory, and that he has done the work which we could not do, that he was faithful and obedient perfectly to your law, that he went to the cross of Calvary and died as the spotless, perfect Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, that we who trust in him might know salvation. And so we pray that we would indeed be a people who grow in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ, that we might close with him if we have not yet come to him in faith.
that we might indeed be a people that not only know him, uh, but grow in him and love him, while looking forward to the resurrection and life everlasting when we will see the king in his beauty forever. And we do pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.